Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 podcast. In this episode, we're going to take a look at artificial intelligence, machine learning, and natural language processing. We will discuss some of the recent advancements, including ChatGPT, how they can be applied, and interesting investment opportunities in this space. So, our guests today are two great experts in this field Anthony Goldblum and Professor Chris Manning, both who originally hail from Australia but are now based in the US. And besides their other activities there, they also get involved as investment partners at venture capital firm AIX Ventures, a venture capital firm that invests in businesses that has artificial intelligence or machine learning at the core of their business model. Anthony, let's start with you. Apart from your role with AIX Ventures, you are also the founder of Kaggle, which is an online community of data scientists solving machine learning problems in the form of competitions. And Kaggle was taken over by Google in 2017. So Anthony, sounds like you've been a busy man. Yeah, it certainly feels that way. Uh, but um, all, all with good things. You know, I, I wear two hats. I'm the founder of a new, it was the founder of the company Kaggle that you mentioned and uh, left six months ago to found a new company um, called Sumble. And then also uh, through, through the AIX, um, you know, do, doing investing in AI focused companies. But I actually think the two reinforce each other. You know, being a participant in the AI ecosystem gives me a lot of sort of hands-on feeling for, you know, what, what are the important breakthroughs that we need and, and what are the sorts of things that AIX might, um, you know, sh- should consider investing in, what are the gaps in the market. So, yes, I definitely feel busy, but at the same time, I do think I'm working on things that reinforce each other nicely. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So let's take a step back. Machine learning and artificial intelligence is at the moment uh, very much uh, in vogue. But uh, how did you sort of get started into the area? Yeah, sure. So my background is actually probably similar to um, the background of a lot of people uh, that I imagine are listening to this podcast. I come from an econometrics background. You can tell I'm Australian originally. I graduated from Melbourne University. My first job out of college was at the Australian Treasury. So I was forecasting GDP, inflation and unemployment. And then after that, I went to the Reserve Bank of Australia, uh, where I, I was doing the same thing. In both cases, I was in the uh, uh, macroeconomic modeling areas. So I was always um, had, had been a hobbyist programmer. Um, and uh, I came across I guess this this kind of emerging field, um, machine learning, I became very interested in the idea of uh, applying more automated pro- approaches to training models or to, to building models than you know what we we typically in econometrics would use these very handcrafted approaches. And I started learning programming languages like Python and started you know looking at trying to apply 
some of the techniques that I was learning out of my job in, in my job. And that's how I first became interested in, I guess, the field of machine learning. And the, the way I, 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 certainly in the early days of data science machine learning, I, I, my definition of a data scientist was somebody who knows more statistics than the average programmer or computer scientist, but more pro programming than the average statistician. And I certainly fit that bill. Um, um, and, you know, there was, there was this uh, small kind of niche well, maybe it wasn't a small conference. It was actually a large conference. The conference was called KDD, Knowledge Discovery and Data. Uh, and one of the things this conference would do every year is they would run a challenge. Uh, and if you won the challenge, you got a speaking slot at the conference. Um, so you could submit a, you know, a paper like everybody else, or you could compete in the competition. And I always thought that the competition was a really elegant uh, idea for deciding you know, in some ways, uh, submitting a paper is a little bit subjective, right? You know, does the reviewer like your paper or do they not? Uh, there's something very elegant about, a, you know, who had the most accurate algorithm on a, a machine learning problem getting to present their work because you could objectively tell, uh, you know, who had built the, the best algorithm. And I found that idea very attractive. Um, and so I, st after the, I left the Reserve Bank and started working on, uh, on building Kaggle, which was, you know, really taking that idea that I had seen in academia and wanting to apply it uh, to industry. And uh, so the idea, the initial idea behind Kaggle was that any company could host a ch uh, machine learning challenge and that any data scientist who was interested in trying to solve that challenge could compete. And uh, the winner would win prize money. And in exchange for the prize money, they would give the intellectual property over to the company uh, that hosted the problem. Uh, so maybe to give you an example of an early problem, uh, we had one of our first customers was Allstate, the large US insurance uh, company. And they wanted to predict which which cars were or which drivers were more likely to be in an accident, You know, who, who should have a higher premium claims prediction problem, very standard insurance problem. And it turned out that the, the results they got out of the challenge were quite a lot stronger than what they had been able to develop internally. Right, and so that and that was a consistent pattern in all the the, the challenges that Kaggle ran. So Kaggle had also that sort of competitive element to it, where people could sort of uh, um, submit their problems, and then whoever had the most elegant problem as a solution, I suppose, um, won the competition. So that came sort of forth from this initial participation uh, uh, with your own sort of algorithms. The winner wasn't the person with the most elegant algorithm, but the most accurate algorithm. Because what the the way the competitions would work is we would give participants two data sets. We'd give them a training data set and then a test data set. Let's take that insurance example I gave you. Uh, Allstate, you're trying to predict who's going to uh, crash their car or who's going to make a, a a claim. So in the training set, we would give them we would give you know those who are competing maybe data on a hundred thousand you know customers, and and we would tell them. You know, this one made a claim, this one didn't, this one made a claim, this one didn't, right? And then we would give them data on another 50,000 uh, customers in what we called the test set. And we knew the answer on the test set, but we never revealed the answer. And so people would train their algorithm on the first half where we gave them the answer, and then we would measure their performance on the second half. You could test whether it was working because you already knew the answer on the on the test set. Yeah, exa exactly. And then the idea is if you had an algorithm that worked on that test data set, then you could apply it at least for problems uh, that, that are stationary. And, you know, a lot, a lot of mar financial markets problems, I don't meet that category. Um, but for, for problems that are stationary, you, you know, it, what worked on the test data set then you know, assuming it was a representative test data set would then work on, you know, sort of the, the 
would generalize to the largest larger corpus of uh, Allstate customers or whatever it is. Um, yeah. One of the reasons Kaggle became quite high profile in the machine learning AI world is before Kaggle, you had all these diff- these people with different backgrounds who were trying to do relatively similar things. And, you know, you had econometricians for economics, you had statisticians for a lot of social science problems, you had um, bioinformaticians for, you know, g- genomics problems, you had computer scientists and machine learning learning people um, and each have their own pet methods you know in econometrics it was generalized linear modeling in uh, computer science it was uh, support vector machines and random forest but every discipline had their own uh, uh, set of techniques and one thing that became very clear uh, in the early days of Kaggle is one technique one problem after problem after problem Um, and so all all these people who had uh, you know such very very different backgrounds all started converging on uh, this technique. The technique was uh, random forest, but, but that that was the technique that just dominated the early competition. And you know, two things happened at the same time. You know, Kaggle kind of came up, and this term data scientist became sort of like an umbrella term for people who who historically had all those different uh, backgrounds. And so the, those two things coming together at the same time, um, you know, kind of allowed random forest for you know, a good number of years became the way you solve problems. And then uh, that got overtaken by another approach called X, uh, gradient boosting machines. Um, and then, you know, in around 2013, 2012, 2013, we started seeing, uh, particularly on computer vision problems, uh, neural networks and deep learning start to take over. Uh, and of course, that's the the genesis for a lot of the, you know, 2012 is often called the Annus Mirabilis for, for machine learning and AI. It was the year that we went from, you know, more of these older style uh, methods to deep neural networks. Then in, uh, call it 2018, we had the transformer model, uh, which came out of Google, uh, that the deep learning came out, out of the University of Toronto primarily that uh, 2018, we had the transformer model, um, which came out of Google, and that led to a you know large increase in what was possible on natural language processing. And then since then, I guess it was also 2017, there was diffusion models, and that um, has then gone on to you know become these models have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger until today. We're using things like GPT-3 uh, and ChatGPT, which are very very large transformer models, and then uh, some of the the models like DALI-2, yeah, the ones where you type in the the, the text um, and it generates images um, and those are very large diffusion models. Yeah, I actually had a bit of a play around with the DALI uh, uh, model. It's uh, it's kind of interesting, you know, you can give sort of short terms and it creates these images. But but at the same time, it was sort of interesting to see. So this this is sort of from the uh, open AI platform, but I think Google had their own version and, and they sort of looked at what I produced and, and, and said, oh, this is actually probably causing a lot of, you know, intellectual property issues or that they had some uh, objections from sort of an ethical standpoint against it. How, how do you look at that? But especially, you know, what we've seen around chat GPT as well with, you know, students cheating on it. But at the same time, you know, if if I look at it and, and had to play around with it, I'm like, well, you know, it's interesting, but it's it's not necessarily that sophisticated yet in terms of what it produces. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to tell you, I, I disagree with you on the the level of sophistication. I'm mind blown by what you can do. You know, I, I use GPT three more, which is the it has an API that's the model uh, behind or roughly the model behind Chat GPT. 
I have practical use cases, I guess, for the large language models like GPT-3, whereas um, for things like DALI-2, you know, generating art and so forth, that's that's not so much my thing. So maybe I'm inclined to agree with you that uh, that that's that the the image generation is a little bit more of a toy. But I I think that the you know what is possible with the language generation is just mind blowing. Can you give an example? Yeah, totally. I mean, one example uh, that we're using heavily for our new company is summarization, right? So we are part, one of the things we're doing uh, with our new company is we're taking um, uh, unstructured data, you know, big big slabs of text, and we're turning it into structured data that people can use as an input to their model of, you know, for some sort of analysis. And GPT-3 is absolutely amazing at, uh, let's say I want to pull out some facts out of a big wall of text uh it's absolutely you know you say let's say it was a job post and i want to know um what does this what does the team do i just type in on the t at the top of gpt3 what is the name of the team hiring and then, then it will tell me uh what that team does which uh i think is absolutely incredible um so it's that's a summarization use case and we at AIX, um, oh, I feel like we're really at the coalface. You know, people people in the venture community uh, say a lot that we're in a, a world right now where the capability of these models runs far ahead of the applications. Uh, so the models are capable of much more. People haven't yet built comp companies or applications around these models yet. But what is possible, you know, we've just had this explosion of capability and the, you know, soon going to see, a, a, I guess, a bit of an explosion in the, the companies that are being built. And certainly we at AIX are seeing a lot of the kind of early examples of what people are trying to build on this. And, you know, one reason it's been an exciting time for us, I mentioned uh, there are, you know, there have been these big developments in the diffusion models and the, the transformer models. So one of our partners, Peter Abiel, is one of the, you know, key, key people behind diffusion models. So it's a lot of his grad students who are doing a lot of the, the work that comes out of um, it, the work around diffusion models and building the companies on top of diffusion models. And then other partner, Chris Manning, did a lot of the, the formative NLP work you know, that led to the transformer and so on and so forth. And when I talk about NLP, I'm talking about natural language processing as in the understanding of text. So the thing that is mind-blowing is not only today can you get a very accurate transcription of, uh, uh, you know, speech-to-text transcription of this conversation, but you um, you could also take the, the transcript of this conversation and say, hey, what did Anthony say about, you know, the, the various eras of machine learning? And it would give you a... a you don't have to. You wouldn't have to read the whole transcript or listen to the whole interview. It would just give you uh, the the answer to your question. Did Anthony talk about X? Uh, which I think is, yeah, as I said, just incredible. Yeah. Um, some of the ones I'm excited about. So, um, that team we've been uh, chatting to that are looking at building a a virtual tra travel agent. So, uh, you know, let's say I, I I'm a surfer. So let's say I want to do a surf trip in April. Where is the best place in the world to do a surf trip in April? Well, give me a few destinations and the pros and cons and how reliable the conditions are. And then, um, okay, can you recommend me a, a hotel nearest to the you know, the best breaks? And then it would give me a list of hotels. All right, great. I want to go from this date to this date. Uh, can you suggest me flights? Um, so you might have, you know, historically, maybe we dealt with human travel agents. Now we mostly deal with these kind of online booking services. Can we get the you know, cost effectiveness of the online booking services by interacting with a, a travel agent, uh, uh, a chat powered travel agent. Another example of uh, uh, something we've seen is uh, somebody who's looking to build a personal assistant for every knowledge worker. 
right? So it's not just, you know, the CEO or the C-suite who get a personal assistant, but everybody uh, might get a, a chat GPT powered or GPT-3 uh, powered um, uh, personal assistant. So the, the idea being it reads all your Slack and it reads all your emails. Uh-oh. And so it has full context on everything that has, has come in. Um, and so then it's able to, you know, handle the things you might have asked a, a personal assistant to do. Yeah, that's that's one of the interesting things I think with ChatGPT as well is that the, the current version that's out is sort of it has a database up till 2021, but it's not actually live connected to the internet. How will it change the model once it does that? There's a short term and a long term answer to that. In the interim, uh, people are using uh, what are called uh, uh, vector databases. So. Um, what you can do, as you know, is you have the, the model which has knowledge up to 2021, um, but you can inject new knowledge in through the prompt, right? So, and 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 the way people are injecting model, the way people have been exploring this idea of injecting knowledge in through the prompt is using something called a vector database. So, let's say what a company might do is they might have um, a lot of the the knowledge about a restaurant or a a hotel uh, encoded in a vector database. Um, And that allows them to query the latest knowledge on hotels and restaurants while still having the power of the the language capability so that chat GPT is more used for the language capability, but the knowledge is coming from this vector database, which injects the new and current information into the prompt. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's to, to a degree, it's sort of this old idea of, you know, if you put crap in, then crap comes out. But if the quality of the data is good, then yeah. you, you get more useful uh, results as well. Yeah, totally. Let, let's go back to, to uh, Kaggle. Um, so you sold that in 2017 uh, to Google. What are they using it for? What is uh, What was sort of the interest for them to, to implement it? Yeah, totally. And the, the, the reason for Google's acquisition has evolved over time. But the initial motivation is we were um, acquired by Google Cloud. And Google Cloud was the number th- and still is the number three in the market. Um, you have Amazon Web Services, and then you have Microsoft Azure, and you have Google Cloud. But if you think about where Google is particularly strong um, relative to those, uh, to those other companies, at least historically so, has been in AI and machine learning. And so um, Google Cloud really had a focus on being the be- best cloud for you know, AI and machine learning. And Kaggle was by far and is still by far the world's largest machine learning community. This company has 11 million data scientists, machine learners signed up. So really a very high fraction of the world's machine learners are on Kaggle. And so what Google uh, wanted to do was use the acquisition to give the, com- the Kaggle community exposure to Google Cloud uh, tools and uh, hardware and so forth. So Google has a chip called a TPU, which is a, a very powerful, an alternative to NVIDIA's GPU. So that was the initial motivation. Um, Kaggle actually moved out of Google Cloud into a uh, an area called Core Systems in, geez, let me remember, somewhere in the 2020 uh, timeframe. And uh, uh, this um, was actually a really nice thing for Kaggle because it meant that Kaggle was incentivized not just to have an impact on Google Cloud, but really you know, was able to take Core Systems as a, you know, a, a central core technology uh, part of Google that bu- builds functionality that powers not just you know one product area at Google, but has a, a Google-wide purview, and so that gave Kaggle the opportunity to you know really have uh, 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 an impact across all Google products. 
So I saw on the website there were a couple of companies' names. So I assume they, they, they're sort of in the public domain, but um, it has solved problems for, for companies such as Ford, Deloitte, and, and even NASA. What were some of the more you know interesting or memorable applications? I mean, one that comes to mind is we did the, uh, I think it was a $1 million prize with Zillow. Uh, Zillow is, you know, like the realestate.com.au of uh, of the US. And they have a very prominent algorithm called the Zestimate algorithm. And so what people do is they put in their address and, uh, you know, Zillow pulls information on how many bedrooms and how many bathrooms and when the house was last renovated, whatever information they have on the address. And then they'll give you back an estimate of what your house is worth. Um, and that's become a, you know, every, people love checking the Zestimate estimate on, you know, to get an estimate of what their house is worth. So uh, uh, when they first launched the Zestimate algorithm, I believe it was accurate within 12% um, of the actual selling price. And over time, they were able to, you know, make improvements and improve more improvements and more improvements. They got down to 5%. They got stuck at 5%. And so one of their things was to, one of their motivations in launching the challenge was, is it possible to get past 5% uh, improvement, you know, improve past 5% accuracy? And it turns out that the answer was yes. You know, one interesting thing about chat competitions, I didn't really explain this dynamic, but it's interesting and worth worth uh, worth talking about for a minute. We would show people on a live leaderboard how they were performing relative to each other. So, you know, you'd check the leaderboard and you had, you know, call it 80% accuracy and you're really happy you're on top of the leaderboard. But then the next day somebody comes up and they get 82% accuracy. And so, whereas you were really happy, uh, now you need to, work till you get ahead of them and so the, the fact that we would show people a live leaderboard really motivated better performance if you're working on a problem in isolation you don't know where to stop right but the fact that you have this live leaderboard you know causes people to push to do better and push to do better um and uh yeah so that so that's um uh that, and and so that is how um Kaggle competitions would consistently outperform what a company was able to do internally yeah we we did a challenge, a lot of medical imaging challenges, um, you know, to doing things like taking CT scans and trying to diagnose lung cancer. And one of the re remarkable things, the very interesting things about, you know, disease like lung cancer is you start off and you, you get a result from the CT scan, then you ultimately do a biopsy or you, you do get a, an answer, like, you know, was there cancer or was there not? So in that case, not only was the winning algorithm able to match the is actually able to surpass, you know, what a, a real live physician could do because your training data, you know, the, the physician makes an imperfect diagnosis. The algorithm was actually able to be better because the ground truth uh, data that it was being trained on was the ultimate, you know, was there cancer, was there not? Yeah. So these are a, a couple of, there are a lot, lot of very memorable examples. Yeah. So so maybe we can draw it sort of into the in investment industry, because I, I understand there were a number of uh, investment firms that also submitted uh, um, challenges to, to this competition. I think uh, Optifer, Jane Street, Two Sigma, there's a couple of them that, that put uh, sort of the problems up. What sort of problems were they trying to solve? Those are all you know, pretty elite investment funds. Um, and one thing they have a voracious appetite for is very strong mathematical talent. So one motivation was, you know, get putting up problems that look a bit like a problem you might solve at a Two Sigma or a Jane Street. Uh, and if you do well on that problem, then uh, you might be, you know, as well as winning a prize, you might also receive a job offer. That was one motivation. Another idea that was explored 
by, by some of these quant funds was, I don't know if you're familiar with, and, and maybe some of your listeners are familiar with, there was a company called Quantopian. I'm not sure if they, they still exist. There was a, a, there's a company called Numeri. These are some companies like trying to build, you know, in some ways crowdsource trading yeah. strategies where you sort of run these challenges and then they backtest the, the results. And if, if your algorithm backtested well, then they deploy your algorithm. One of the difficult things about that model, you know, at least according to some of the funds that we had spoken to was very hard as a one man person or one woman person competing in a competition to do all the aspects of trading like end to end, right? So there's a lot of pieces to building a trading system. You know, first you have to find alpha, then you have to do portfolio construction, right? So you found some alpha, but then you, you don't want to have a too correlated portfolio. Then you have to figure out how do you actually trade the signal that you have found so that you don't move the, uh, I think they call it slippage or something like that, where you don't move the market. And each of those are separate problems that at a at a fund, you'd have a team for each of these different yeah. parts, right? So the idea that somebody in a crowdsource uh, kind of setting could do all of those, you know, some of the funds said to us, I think that's a, a big ask, but you could have individuals do well in the finding alpha piece, right? Or the um, portfolio construction piece or the, you know, figuring out the optimal trading piece. So we did have some interest in, from funds in in chunking up their problems so that they weren't sort of a full end-to-end trading problem, but rather it's with some aspect of the, you know, so just, just one piece of the pipeline. Yeah, I, I remember looking into Quantopian and uh, some of the challenges that you mentioned, I think eventually they, they closed the fund because it became too hard to implement it all. But but of the form, the, the firms that um, submitted their problems onto Kaggle, what sort of problems were they trying to solve? Was Were they also looking for alpha generating algorithms or, or was it in, in different areas? Yeah, I think it was a mix. Um, some of them, as I said, were more toy problems aimed at recruiting, and some of them were, um, I think, of the areas that I mentioned, you know, finding alpha was probably the one that people believed was the the most promising way that the Kaggle community might be able to contribute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But with alpha, it's always the problem that, you know, uh, something that might have worked in the past might not work going forward. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I, I had a bit of a thought about where, machine learning and artificial intelligence comes into play in, in, in investing. And it, it sort of led me to the idea that, you know, one of the problems about investing and why it's very hard is that you're trying to say things about the future. Does machine learning actually help with that? I mean, it can. Certainly the Kaggle setup is harder in what I would describe as adversarial situations. And so some examples of adversarial situations are trading you know you're trying to find alpha but so are other people um and uh you know each other's impacts on the market and other examples of adversarial type problems are spam you know you close you identify a type of spam and then spammers figure out how to get around it fraud is another adversarial you figure out how to detect a form of credit card fraud and then the fraudsters come up with other approaches um these are all difficult in a kaggle setup because um, what happens is you run a challenge, the data was frozen for, you know, three months or something like that. Uh, then you get the result, then you put it into production. Um, and in the meantime, you know, it might be the case that the approach to fraud had changed or you implement the algorithm and then 
you know, you sort of need more of a continuous setup. And actually, I haven't kept tabs on where this landed, but it was something that we were thinking quite a bit about at Kaggle. Like, can we set up something like an evergreen competition where, you know, maybe you award a prize at the end of each month the competition never closes, right? It just keeps rolling. You know, you keep having the data feeding in and it keeps rolling on and on and on. And I think a setup like that might be might be better for an adversarial type competition. And so maybe coming back to your question, does machine learning work, you know, with with, with time series data when you're trying to predict the future? The answer is definitely yes. Um, but the distinction I would make is your algorithm needs more babysitting if you're working in a, you know, in a in, in a setting that has an adversarial dy dimension to it. So, in in terms of the investment process, wh where do you think that it is most useful? And I sort of ask this with the idea that uh, there's a couple of institutional investors in Australia that have been uh, sort of playing around with machine learning models, and actually, where they found the most applications is not so much in in trying to find alpha, but more in sort of controlling risk. But what are your ideas around it? Yeah, I mean, I should say that um, I've never been a professional trader. And so I, I, I sort of feel a little bit uh, of an imposter trying to answer that question. It <laughs> sounds like you've, you've spoken to people with real direct knowledge. The one thing I will say is the thing that is amazing about the Kaggle community that they do incredibly well is they come up with creative features. If I think about what, you know, historically has made for a really good competitor in Kaggle competitions, particularly on structured data, less so on images and natural language and some of the unstructured problems. It's the ability to come up with hypotheses and uh, creative hypotheses and then to test them quickly. You know, an example I, you know, I often give is um, that we had a competition to predict which cars sold us at a secondhand auction would be good buys and which one would be lemons. And it turned out one of the the competition winning insights was that car color had a big impact oh and so the the person who identified that relationship tested a whole lot of different hypotheses you know that, uh, just take car color um you have all different car colors and you you know a normal person sees that column and they're like okay here are car colors but a machine learner who's very good at feature engineering will say okay well i can group these into dark color cars and light color cars on the assumption that dark color cars get into accidents more at night because people don't see them and then they'll test that hypothesis and it t turned out that had, was not no relationship there more about their red car no so what they found was that um uh, unusual color cars were more likely to be reliable than than more standard color cars and their hypothesis in testing that was that if you're the buyer of an unusual color car, take it an orange car um, as an example, you're probably an enthusiast. Therefore, you look after the car uh, a bit better. And so by the time it gets sold at a secondhand auction, it's in better condition uh, than, a, uh, than a standard color car. Right. You know, that, that's an example of the kind of thing, um, you know, Kaggler's are very good at. I'll, I'll give you another example. Um, we ran a, we did quite a lot of, um, ran quite a few challenges with uh, defense departments over the years. And uh, we ran one, and I forget what the motivation was, but they were trying to take satellite images and order them chronologically, right? Uh, I, I, I cannot remember why this was an important use case for them, but for, for some reason uh, they needed this done. And so what the winner did was they would look for things like they do uh, object detection on uh, construction sites 
and they'd find construction sites. And so construction sites always progress, you know, that get more and more and more built up, right? So yes, there's good machine learning in being able to identify a construction site, but you have to have the creativity to think of the the you know, of looking for the construction site as a way to order the satellite images, right? And so yeah. I think um, a lot of a lot of the best machine learners are very creative in the the, the ways to use lateral thinking to, to think of clever angles on the problem. And I would assume, you know, again, with the caveat that I've never been a trader, I would assume that's probably also a skill that is quite valuable in finding alpha. Yeah, 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 for sure. So... You, you're now involved with uh, AIX, which which uh, is basically a venture capital firm. What, what are sort of the the type of businesses that you look for? Yeah, I mean, each of us has a different area of expertise. So I mentioned to you, um, you know, my partner Chris Manning is is you know pretty much the godfather of natural language processing. So he looks at a lot of the NLP companies. Partner Peter Abiel is the creator of Diffusion Models, so has a lot of con connectivity with the people building those, so, and also is very big with uh, in the robotics community. Um, in for me particularly, if you look at uh, you know where I guess I have differentiated knowledge, I've seen the tools, the kinds of tools that have gotten wide-scale adoption by data scientists. Um, so I sort of feel like I have a really good pulse on, you know, where are the gaps in the tool chain of what data scientists use mm -hmm. is, is one area. Um, and then an, another thing I, I really enjoy is, you know, I've now been in the field for a good 10 years. Um, and, you know, through this, I've got gotten to know a, a lot of very strong people in the field uh, who I respect. and. Uh, even even in some cases, they're building companies outside of tooling, and it's been you know very enjoyable to to back them and to be able to involve be involved in their journey. So maybe to give you a couple of examples of companies I've invested in, um, one that uh, kind of fits into the the tooling kind of example, and then one that's uh, you know a, a close relationship. Um, on, actually, I'll give you two on the tooling. Did a company company called Chroma. Now, earlier in the conversation, I mentioned these vector databases as um, kind of the key to injecting current knowledge into uh, the ability to build a large large language model with current context, right? Um, so Chroma is a very strong team that is building um, a, a vector database specifically uh, designed to feed these large language model use cases. So that's one example. Another is a company called Mutable, and what they do is, um, you know, as you're kind of co coding as a software engineer or a data scientist, um, they can do things like predict, you type a little bit of code, they predict the rest of your code for you. Okay. Which is really nice. You know, it makes you a much uh, more productive developer. But then once you've finished writing your code, they can then do a pass over your code and sort of clean it up. You know, very often a software engineering team will will have like a style guide. Uh, they'll go back and sort of clean it up. And, and a lot of this sort of work is historically been done manually. And now you know, they've got an AI powered coding co-pilot. Yeah. Then on the, you know, the example of being able to back somebody, I've had a long-term relationship with Pete Warden, uh, who was one of the original authors of TensorFlow. TensorFlow, if, you, if you're familiar with it, is there are two main libraries people use to train uh, machine learning models, TensorFlow out of Google and PyTorch out of um, Facebook. Um, Pete was one of the original creators of TensorFlow and then built uh, something called TensorFlow Lite, which is basically the TensorFlow that's deployed on all of our mobile phones. So if you've used any machine learning powered 
you know, applications on your cell phone, whether it be things like Google Assistant and so forth, there's a very high chance that this was built using uh, TensorFlow Lite, which is um, deployed on, I think it's 3 billion, his software is deployed on 3 billion smartphones around the world, which is pretty mind-blowing. Okay. So he left uh, Google to, to start a company called Useful Sensors. And what he is doing is building chips, very, very low-powered chips that allow you to um, embed machine learning in your electric electronic device. So let's say uh, you had a fan, like a Dyson fan or something. They could have a person detection chip uh, in the fan so that the fan follows you around the room, as an example. Or let's say you had uh, a gaze detection and speech recognition chip in your light. You could look up at the light and say off, and it sees that you're looking at it and uh, and it hears that you say off. And it's very, very complex to be able to get machine learning to work on, you know, call it $2 chips, uh, which is what you would need to do in order to, you know, make a lot of these electrical appliance use cases uh, uh, workable. Um, but, uh, you know, Pete really is, first he built, you know, was involved in building the full TensorFlow, then the, the TensorFlow Lite, then TensorFlow Micro, and now he's, uh, uh, you know, help, helping to, to 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 get these ultra low machine learning um, embedded into uh, appliances. So, yeah, that that's an that's an ex those are some examples of some of the companies I personally have been involved in. So, so what's next for you with uh, AI Adventures? Um, are are you constantly looking for new companies to add, or or uh, what what are sort of your plans going forward? Yeah, I mean, I said this earlier. Um, it's such a, it's a really exciting time for AIX because um, it feels like the capability is running ahead of the actual implementation, um, and so there's just an explosion of companies uh, doing incredibly useful things. So I sort of feel like it's really an exhilarating time, both to be you know someone building a company uh, leveraging AI as well as investing in other companies leveraging AI. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. All right, let's switch now to Chris Manning. So Chris, uh, you are a professor of machine learning with Stanford University and also an investment partner with AIX Ventures. Um, Chris, how did you first get interested into this space and especially the natural language processing part of it? Yeah, so really where I started off was an interest in doing things with computers and human languages, natural language processing. Um, so as a high school student, then sort of heading into undergrad in Australia that, you know, I happen to see a little bit of the idea of linguistics, this idea you could sort of look at the science of all human languages, what's their structure, how are people able to understand them, how do tiny kids manage to learn these complex things, even though people struggled so hard in high school and university um, to learn. Um, different languages. And so that fascinated me. But then I was also, you know, well into doing things with maths and computer science. Well, you know, at least doing stuff with computers, you know, playing around with TRS-80s or Apple IIs or whatever there was around those days. And so I was sort of enthusiastic in putting those together. And so that led to my interest in computational linguistics or natural language processing. But, you know, while I was an undergrad, I mean, machine learning was sort of really only in its beginnings, right? It was seen as this kind of pretty sketchy bit on the side of artificial intelligence. Um, but actually, one of 
one person, really the only Australian who was prominent in machine learning in the 1980s was Ross Quinlan, and he had developed this method ID3 for decision tree induction. And so really, um, you know, during my undergrad um, and in my honors thesis, I started doing things with ID3 and um, one thing led to another from there. Yeah, yeah, right. So can you tell me a little bit about your, your current focus of your research? Sure. So um, starting in 2010, I guess, the big focus of my research has been doing things with artificial neural networks, otherwise known as deep learning and natural language processing. So really for um, my whole career, the, the change that I've been at the forefront is using empirical methods, working from lots of language data. You know, that's something that just started to become possible around the years when I was working on my PhD. You know, this was slightly before the World Wide Web began, but there started to be sources like Newswire, parliamentary proceedings, um, legal things um, where you could start to get quantities of digital text. And that just opened up this whole new way of thinking about describing learning human languages compared to sort of the old-fashioned AI approaches where it's sort of really by hand writing rules for grammars and that and in other areas of AI expert systems and those other things from the 1980s. Um, but you know in the 90s and the 2000s we were using probabilistic models for natural language processing. In the late 2000s um, people started to show some promise in going back to neural network methods. And so I got into that early and um, that really worked out great for me. <laughs> Glad to hear. So what are some of the major improvements that you've seen since sort of those early days to, to now? I mean, there've been a whole succession of major improvements. So, you know, neural networks in the earliest days for natural language so this is word vectors. So the idea is we can represent a word by uh, a big vector of real numbers. That sounds a really weird idea when you first see it. You're going to take a word like house and you're going to say, okay, that's a vector of minus 0.127 plus 0.65 dot, dot, dot for a lot of numbers. I mean, that doesn't seem to add much value, but effectively we can learn these vectors in such a way that they can represent all kinds of similarity relations between words. And having that great model of word meaning similarity already lets you do interesting things in NLP that you couldn't do when you just treated words as symbols. Um, the sequence of letters of how we spell them. But since then, a number of other major improvements have been made. So there have been new developments in neural network types. So in particular, um, we went through sort of the popularity of sequence models like LSTMs, the invention of having attention as a kind of content addressable memory, which led to sort of big advances in machine translation, summarization, other things. And then some of these new ideas of how to build neural network models came together in the transformer architecture, which has just become the exciting technical architecture that's powered the last um, five years. But beyond simply having that architecture, there was another 
self-discovery, which in retrospect is very simple, but it actually took a while for people to have this idea, which was that no matter what kind of um, language understanding or generation task we might want to do, we could build a very powerful general language understanding and producing system by training it over vast amounts of data to do a very simple task, which is just predicting a word in context. So given some context, predict the next word that will appear in the text. And that's a really convenient task because you don't need to have humans sitting around labeling data or anything like that. All you need is a pile of text and you can play this game of, I'll show you the first 10 words, predict the 11th. I'll show you the first 11 words, predict the 12th. Um, but that allowed the training of these very large high-parameter neural networks, which led to things like BERT and GPT-3 and ChatGPT um, on that task. And that gave revolutionary new capabilities. Um, and that takes us most of the way to the present. But, you know, for the last bit of the present for what you're seeing with chat GPT and similar models is now people layering on other kinds of training on top of that of instruction, fine tuning and in context learning to have these models much more be things that you can say what you want them to do and they'll do it. Yeah, I, I looked at your CV and it's sort of stated as a research goal that um, you, you wanted to achieve that computers can intelligently process, understand, and generate human language material. So you mentioned just chat GPT. How far are we off that goal? I think for everyone, you know, including people like me who've been doing natural language processing for 20 years, it's just amazing the progress that's been made in the last couple of years and, you know, models like ChatGPT, they're just great, right? That you can ask them to produce things and they'll produce paragraphs of coherent, well-written text. And this is amazing. And you can also use them for all kinds of natural language analysis and understanding tasks. You know, it used to be the case we'd train all of these systems for things like sentiment analysis or um, relation extraction. But, you know, now... You can just say to chat GPT, you know, here's a paragraph of text. Um, this is tone, you know, neutral, positive or negative, and it'll do sentiment analysis. You can say, you know, in the text, which people mentioned being hired by Microsoft, and it'll tell you their names, right? It'll do that kind of information extraction. So that, yeah, it'll just do a ton. I mean, does that mean that all problems are solved and I should um, <laughs> put my feet up? No. I mean, you know, there's still very active research. Um, so, you know, there are particular problems that people have noticed with these large language models. They tend to hallucinate facts when they don't actually know the answers. They sound just as confident saying made up stuff. That's problematic. There's, you know, although they're very good, they don't actually maintain a consistent model of the world. So very often, um, if you have extended pieces of text, they'll say things that contradict each other. Um, so whereas humans have more of a sort of a model of how the world is in their heads and mainly keep consistency with that. Another area that I'm interested in doing research in is, you know, essentially these models have been really exploiting scale. So they're not 
very good at learning from the language they hear. But if we feed them truly humongous amounts of language, you know, like 10 billion words, um, then they can do a, a very good job. Um, but that's sort of both scientifically uninteresting, right? So um, little little children, right, they can become very good language users being shown about 50 million words of a language. And so, gee, that means that, you know, human learning is much more efficient at getting signal from data than our machine learning. And so um, as a scientist, we'd like to be able to do that. But then also in the practical world, well, if you want to train a model on 10 billion words, you can do that in English, you can do it in Chinese, you could do it in a few other languages like Spanish and um, German, Hindi, but, you know, the fast um, number of languages in the world, um, no matter what you do, there just aren't 10 billion words available in that language. And when you get to sort of um, genuinely small languages, there might not be, um, you know, you might not be able to get 100 million, let alone a billion. And we'd also like to be able to provide language technologies to speakers of a much broader range of languages. And I've been interested in doing that as well. Yeah. Yeah, Anthony sort of mentioned that there is a bit of a problem at the moment that uh, the user experience uh, hasn't quite caught up yet with what the models can do. Like people interacting with them, they sort of feed them very simple tasks and haven't really explored the full range of the capabilities of these programs. How do you look at that? What, what are some of the applications that, that are maybe not obvious that you're interested in? Yeah, so I think that's right. I mean, so this is essentially what I'm interested in, both for teaching at Stanford University and in being an investment partner for AIX, that we've actually had these enormous technology advances in building AI models. And, you know, I'm concentrating on natural language processing, but these same techniques are also delivering amazing results for vision, robotics, in bioinformatics, for proteomics and um, genome interpretation, right? There's sort of these amazing new technologies, and it feels like there's this big technology overhang where there are these great new capabilities, and most of the world hasn't yet taken advantage of them. And I think now we're at this point that they're just all kinds of places. So, you know, to a large extent, um, companies, you know, operate over human language that, you know, yeah, there are some spreadsheets and things like that, but, you know, you've got um, people doing sales, there's people doing support, there are people doing marketing, there are people um, transferring information in between the different divisions of a company, there are meetings, um, there are decisions on strategy, all of that stuff is happening in human language. And in all of those areas, there are opportunities now to make use of these large language models to have people perform work faster and better. So in most cases, it'll be as a tool assisting humans. But, you know, if I'm someone that's involved in copywriting and marketing, you know, rather than sort of sitting around staring um, at my blank sheet of paper, wondering how to word things, 
if I've got sort of a few ideas of themes, I can say, write some copy that um, advances these themes. Why not write five of them? And, you know, you can have the model um, suggest five paragraphs. And then, well, you know, maybe you, you might want to pick some of the best ideas from several of them. But, you know, either way, it'll just allow your work to be done faster and often better. I think you mentioned earlier about sort of the interaction with languages and, and the different type of languages. And, and it made me think of a, a blog post that I read on one of the Google uh, blogs that was talking about the, the, the engine behind the Google Translate uh, system. And I think they were experimenting with uh, a, a few different techniques. And, and one of them was called um, a zero-shot translation, which effectively tried to translate one language to another where it hadn't encountered one of those languages. They hadn't actually fed it information on that language. And so it was sort of doing it on the fly. And and from memory, it, it sort of said in this blog post that this program started to invent its own language to make it a more efficient way of translating between these languages. And after that, it was shut down because we were quite concerned about this this new language that was being developed. What is sort of going on there and why do you think that they shut it down? I think you're actually um, there crossing between two different stories, to be honest. I, I think the, the shutting down one was experiments that were done at Facebook. Um, so maybe let me answer about both of them separately. Sure. So for um, machine translation, I mean, so machine translation was a huge success of um, neural networks starting, you know, with research about 2014, how well it worked was just so enormously better than the methods that have been used previously. It was essentially made it from sort of first research attempts to everyone was using in production like two years later in 2016. But, you know, starting off the way people built neural machine translation systems was the, the same kind of setting that people had used previously to build translation systems, which was you're building a translation system between one pair of languages. So we were building, say, a Chinese-English machine translation system. And so in, a, in doing it in an empirical way, you'd first of all collect a lot of data that had been already translated between Chinese and English. And, you know, there are actually quite a few sources of that. I mean, including, um, you know, handy places like Hong Kong, um, which translates a lot of material um, between Chinese and English. And so you train a model based on how things are translated to be able to translate more stuff. But once people started building much bigger um, neural networks, it turned out that you could do this amazing thing. So rather than sort of just training for one language pair, you could train one, a huge neural net that is designed to be able to translate between any pair of languages. So what you do is when you're feeding in a sentence, you first of all sort of tag it with a tag at the beginning saying, you know, this is English or this is Uzbek or this is Danish, whatever the language is. And then it sort of reads through that and then you give it a tag for what language you want it to translate to and you say Chinese or Lithuanian or whatever it is. 
and then it will proceed to generate word by word the translation in that language. And somewhat surprisingly, doing things that way in a large neural network works. It's not only that it works as well as training a system between just two languages, it actually works better because the big neural network can share information and structure between the different human languages in a way that it helps it. You know, obviously there are quite a few languages that are related to each other. So, you know, um, you might expect that Italian and Spanish can help each other. But, you know, languages also, lots of languages now have English loan words in them and they can help each other and so on. So you get benefits across that. And so you end up with kind of general representations of each language and a general ability to sort of align between languages. And so the zero shot translation was then this amazing result, which is, you know, for major languages and major pairs of languages, you can collect a fair quantity of translation. So for English, Chinese, English, Spanish, English, German, you can collect lots of translations. But, you know, if we take more minor languages, so if I take something like, I don't know, Lithuanian and Indonesian, you know, no one translates Lithuanian into Indonesian or vice versa. So there's no training data. But once we've trained this big neural network so it can translate Lithuanian into Russian, Lithuanian into English, and we've got English into Indonesian and whatever else, Dutch into Indonesian, um, that actually you can, with these tagged languages, you can just tag the input and say, this is Lithuanian and tag that what I want to produce is um, Indonesian. And so then it can quite well translate between those two languages, even though it's never seen any um, parallel text of sentences translated between Lithuanian and Indonesian. Do you want me to go on and tell about the, the shutdown one? Sure. Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. So this, this was an experiment where um, Facebook then, now Meta, was wanting to train a pair of language using AI systems to communicate with each other and do tasks so that they could negotiate contracts or buy and sell stuff and things like that. And essentially they were getting the models to learn as they went so they'd be better at executing tasks. For what they had and for what they were learning, what happened was that the models, you know, they started off having been trained on English, but they didn't stick to English because there's really no reason for them right, to do so, right? That as time went by, they could just adopt their own sort of efficient communication symbol system and transfer like coded messages, just efficient symbol patterns to represent different meanings between each other and that they looked nothing like um, English anymore. And so this was the, um, they shut it off. Now, you know, I actually think that story was blown up out of all proportion by the media <laughs> because, you know, it was sold as, you know, the computers went rogue. They started speaking a secret language that humans couldn't understand and people had to reach for the power plug. 
um, before um, something went badly wrong. You know, I think that's sort of a big exaggeration. You know, I think, yeah, something went wrong. The researchers hadn't thought through this experiment very well. They somehow imagined that these models would stick to English, but um, start getting better at using English to do negotiations. But what they hadn't thought of was in this sort of closed loop context of these two artificial agents, there was no reason for them to stick to English. You know, the reason we stick to English when we're talking is because, you know, all the other people in, well, it depends on which room you're in, but in the common situation um, in Australia or the US, all the people in the room can speak English. And so you wanting to be say things that are broadly understood. So you don't start yeah. inventing, you know, your own private code between two people. And so that's part of the constraints of human language, but also of computers that want to be able to communicate with humans that they need to have this shared understanding of language. What what are some of the more interesting uh, companies that have that you've been involved with from um, the investment point of view with uh, AIX? Um, yeah, so there are lots of different areas um, of using machine learning AI um, involved in various kinds of predictions and different ways of doing things. Um, so you know, one company we're funding um, is Atmo, and Atmo is aiming at doing sort of next generation weather prediction. So, you know, there's an established um, in industry of sort of doing weather prediction, and it's pretty good in first world countries, um, but it's done on very expensive supercomputer hardware so that um, people, including the Australian Bureau of Meteorology, are sort of buying, you know, multi-million dollar um huge supercomputers to do physics-based weather simulations. And now it seems like by using clever deep learning approximations and more modern um, GPU, graphics processing unit acceleration, widely used in neural networks, that you should be able to predict weather actually better um, using much more modestly um, priced hardware. And so that's the market that they're developing. And in the first instance, they're aiming um, especially at all the countries in the world that haven't been putting millions of dollars into um, buying computers for their Bureau of Meteorology, which is sort of, you know, most of the countries outside of the first world. So um, that's one cool idea. Another one um, that's away from language that's a fun company um, is useful sensors. So useful sensors is trying to see what can be done with what's called edge computing. That's putting machine learning models in little devices that are at the site of things. So, you know, traditionally a lot of computing went up to the cloud. Um, so um, things on your phone like speech recognition or um, you're doing machine translation or recognizing the text in a menu or something, right? That it was sending pictures or audio waves up to the cloud and all happened there. And so in the last five or so years, more much more computing is being done on your phone um, so that things like speech rec now happen on your phone, which gives a much better and faster experience and also means that if you're using your phone in some foreign country where you don't 
have a mobile plan it'll still work and do speech recognition but you know you can actually go much lower end than that now right that you can now get sort of teeny little computers um um cpus that kind of sell for like literally a few bucks um so that you can get a three buck system like these are kind of some of the boards that hobbyists also use like arduinos and raspberry pis and things like that but even yeah. lower end than that right a raspberry pi is about um well, i think it's about ten dollars us so whatever that is about fifteen dollars australian um whereas you can even go and order a magnitude down from there and you can still put limited speech recognition systems on them you know things that'll understand a few words or you can put vision systems so that means that there are things you can do like you know take a tap and you can put one of these into it and so then when your hands are covered with something sticky gooey or bad you know rather than having to hold the handle to turn it on anyway you could just say tap on tap off and it would do it um yeah and you know so there seems like there are just lots of ways in which you could give sort of a new generation of consumer products where you're only actually adding a few dollars to the bill of materials and you could use and provide some of these sort of next generation capabilities yeah yeah for sure so if we look at sort of uh, the use of MPL in, in, in the investment context, um, a little bit earlier, you mentioned, for instance, that uh, these systems could potentially uh, get the mood of, of a certain piece of text. Can we extend that and can these systems sort of get a mood of the market? Can they interpret uh, market sentiment by reading just a lot of different texts? Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not really... An expert in finance but i mean there's no doubt at all that these systems can do a very good job at evaluating text data and i mean you know although there's been a lot of use of numeric data in finance and there's obvious an obvious reason why it's important you know on the other hand you know markets are meant to be moved by fundamentals and most fundamental changes are actually expressed in, in human language again like in news reports that's when there's sort of a strike in the mine in Bolivia or something like that that's going to have material impacts on a company um, and so you can learn that from language and then some of what happens with stocks isn't actually really fundamentals. It's then, you know, mob psychology as to how people feel about different sectors. And again, much of the best evidence for that is coming through on language. So, you know, both for getting more factual information and sentiment, yes, you can do it with large language models very well and very flexibly. Yeah. Question is whether you want to want to or not and ignore the fundamentals. Um, so, how did you get involved with uh, AIX? I know that uh, Anthony is an Australian. Uh, you're an Australian too. Is that the yes. uh, denominating factor, or uh, uh, partly? Um, yeah. So, I mean, in some sense, I'm pretty close to the sort of center of how AIX um, started. But you know, it wasn't actually me that started it. So, the the beginning of of it was really. Um, between um, Sean Johnson and Richard Socher, thinking that there are good opportunities for AI professionals 
to do more and have a productive role in AI investing. But, you know, in terms of um, rounding out AIX, well, Richard Socho is my former PhD student who had then gone on to found a couple of companies, Sean Johnson. Well, so then two of the other um, investment partners, um, Peter Abiel and um, Suchi Saria had also done um, PhDs in the Stanford AI lab um, during my time. And then um, Sean Johnson was both a former roommate of Peter Abiel's and um, he was working as the head of product of another of my former PhD students, Spence Green, who was then, um, well, then and still running a company, Lilt, that works on using using machine translation in a kind of editing interface to help human translators. Um, and yeah, then um, me and Anthony, we're Australian. Um, <laughs> so, you know, yeah, there was a sort of a fairly um, close connections between this group of people coming together. But yeah, the overall feeling was that that there are these great opportunities in technology and it'd be good to get more technology, AI technology out into the world. Well, you know, one way someone like me does that is by educating young people on what are the possibilities. Um, one way that um, people like Anthony or Richard are doing that is by um, founding and building companies. But we sort of felt that there was the opportunity to do more. And although there are lots of VC funds who are now wanting to say we're AI funds and we're doing AI, you know, a lot of them are exactly the same ones that six months ago was saying it was all about crypto. Um, <laughs> and, you know, most of them don't actually have much depth in artificial intelligence, which is a highly technical field. And so we believe that both in terms of being able to decide which companies were promising in terms of, you know, which, which people really understood what they're doing, what potential product ideas were or weren't realizable with current technology. Um, but then also in being able to help early stage companies be successful, that we could just offer more from the AI expertise side than other venture firms. Now, of course, it's not all about AI expertise. There are all the other parts of building a company as well as to, you know, finding a, a market, working out an initial sort of beachhead where you can start to get traction, et cetera. So, um, that's where the full-time team also comes in that you need to have the rest of the competencies too. But nevertheless, it's really depth of AI expertise that gives us our differentiating um, special factor. Yeah. Does it also give you sort of ideas in how to uh, bring concepts across when you teach students in, in terms of in, including some of these real-world applications and translating that to an academic context? Yeah, absolutely. I've actually been finding that valuable because, you know, although I am and have been a long for a long time, you know, an AI professional in the sense of being an academic, you know, if you're only an academic, you might be up on all the latest research that's being published in papers, but it's not that 
you're naturally seeing a great deal of how what companies are and aren't doing wanting to do or not not able to do in terms of using technologies in the world so you know we've been doing this for a couple of years now we started our fund ax ventures in 2021 and i feel like it actually has been really valuable and giving me a broader view and more insight into what are the possibilities and how ai is starting to be used in um, commercial applications and what more might be done yeah yeah so if we can end up with a little bit of crystal ball gazing um chat gpt has made a big splash and uh, people are still working out what it all can do what, what do you think is sort of the, the the next iteration what is the next big thing in in this field great question yeah um so i think you know there's no doubt that there's going to be continued progress in making larger and better language models and so some of the things that we're already seeing taking off where these models are to a certain extent able to you know plan and reason that they'll get better at doing that but in terms of where the most distinctive um advances are going to happen i think they're likely to be in doing much more with multimodal models that go beyond just language but then also have images video commands um connecting to um the world and devices and things like that so you know we've already seen a couple of fantastic things so whether it's stability ai mid-journey or dali 2 right we've had these great models where you could put in some text and it'll produce a picture for you but you know there's a lot more that can happen there and all of these things will get you closer also to having a model that has more of the richness that human beings have of understanding a, an integrated sensory world so to mention a couple of those it's just starting to become possible to do things in generative ai with um video or you know if you wish it can be animation um style video and i mean i think the opportunities there are just fantastic right it's sort of extremely expensive producing animation or video and to the extent that a lot more stuff can be cheaply you know so rather than hollywood special effects where it's costing millions and millions to produce something for a scene that that kind of cost can be coming down orders of magnitude and so i think we could easily reach the point where sort of not high-end videos you know the kind of video they play you when you get on a plane to give you the safety instructions that we'll be able to be doing ai production of those kind of videos and you know that's an you know the, by far the biggest um, amount of video work is actually corporate videos right not the um, super expensive end that we um, watch on movies and you know they're just enormous opportunities for cost savings there but then the other direction is using these language models to much more hooked together with the world where actions are taken so that rather than just the model producing text well it'd be actually nice if it could book your movie tickets or arrange for your address to be changed all of these things that are sort of fiddly and tedious where you're um, manipulating web pages um it'd be really nice to be able to outsource those 
um, so your foundation model assistant. And I think that will actually become possible over the next couple of years. You just have to watch carefully what it's doing to make sure it's right. <laughs> for sure, for sure. That sounds very interesting. So definitely video is, is next and then the personal assistant of the, the future. Well, Chris and Anthony, thank you very much for your time. I've uh, learned a lot this episode. Great talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.